This is Solom Literary Press. I'm your host, Riley Bounds, and this is a Solom podcast where we discuss and examine the intersection of the modern renaissances in evangelical literature, philosophy, and spiritual formation. Today, I'm excited to have poet Bethany Brengen on the podcast. Bethany F. Brengen is a freelance writer and editor who splits her time between the Olympic Peninsula and the internet. Her poetry has appeared in the Gordon Square Review, the 2015 Poets Market, Flying Island, and CV2, the Canadian Journal of Poetry and Critical Writing. She can be found at brengenedits.com. That's B-R-E-N-G-A-N edits.com and a medium.com slash essays no one asked for. More information will be provided in the show notes, including a link to a contributor page on the Solon website if you want to find out more. So Bethany, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I have listened to all the previous podcasts, and I was delighted when you asked me, because this is like spirituality and poetry together, like that couldn't be more my jam. So thank you for yeah. having me. Yeah. Yeah. You were um, one of the poets that I was most excited about um, when you submitted the solemn. So, so yeah, it's great to have you. Um, so I guess just starting off, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, namely, how did you uh, come to Christ? Well, I'm like a lot of, I think, kids who grew up in Christian homes. I came to Christ very young to the point where, I don't have really strong memories of the moment I became a Christian. Uh, My stronger memories of faith are kind of those stepping stones as I got older and I started to make things my own and I started to make my own decisions about what my relationship with God would be. Uh, And I will say my parents are very encouraging in that aspect. Like they really pushed me and my siblings to ask questions (laughs) and to, to have our own relationship with God outside of our parents' relationship with God, which I think is really important. So what's your experience of Christ like now? I like to think that, that it's a little deeper and more mature, and hopefully that's the way one's experience of Christ continues to be as one develops. Um, certainly, Certainly you don't want to lose that quote unquote childlike aspect to your faith, but also (laughs) hopefully your faith is strong enough that it accepts complications. And I feel like adult life is so much more complicated than I was prepared for as a child. You you hit that point in your teenage years and you're like, I understand how the world works. If everyone would just do the things the way I have decided things would be done, all of these problems would be gone. And then you hit adult life and you're like, oh, no, everything is incredibly complicated. And it turns out I am not God. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and I think I keep coming back to that, like, oh, I am not God. God is God. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of sums up my current relationship with Christ, the continually coming back to, oh, (laughs) I am but dust and you are Christ. And that's good. Hmm. Hmm. So you don't you don't uh, subscribe to any particular denomination right now? 
No, I am, I spend a lot of time in a lot of different denominations when I was a child um, because my parents, despite the fact that they hate change, ended up church hopping quite a bit. So we went to Lutheran churches, we went to Presbyterian churches. We visited a lot of Baptist churches because Western Kentucky is Baptist Church Central. And we went to charismatic churches at home, like like small, weird little home churches mm-hmm. in a lot of different places. And now I'm kind of generic store brand Protestant evangelical, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. So did you attend an MFA program by chance? I did not. Um, and that I was really, it was really interesting to hear Matt Andrews, who was on the previous podcast, talk mm-hmm. about also not having that background. Because sometimes I do feel a little like, oh man, all of my friends who are writing really great poetry also have attended an MFA program. Mm-hmm. Like, am I missing out? And it was the right decision for me to not go to an MFA program at that point in my life, like money, health wise, just straight up sanity wise, that was a mm-hmm. good choice. But I do kind of miss having that context that formal mm-hmm. education gives you where you learn everything in relation to everything else. Mm-hmm. And currently I am learning things as I can and grasping bits of knowledge, but they are not always as interconnected as Mm -hmm. I would like them to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's much more systematic, I think, uh, in a program as opposed to just uh, sporadically learning things and piecing them together on your own. So that can definitely be a benefit of an MFA program. Um, so just generally for you, what is life like being a Christian poet? I mean, I feel like, I mean, I don't wake up every morning and go, I'm a Christian poet. <laughs> this is my life. I think I wake up every morning and go, where's my caffeine? And, you know, what's on my mm-hmm. to-do list? But I will say that both poetry and Christianity have permeated my life and how I live my life so much that I can't disconnect them from Mm. my life and I can't disconnect them from each other. They're Mm. so intertwined. Like everything that happens day to day reminds me of a Bible verse or reminds me of something that could be a poem. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's almost less like, oh, and here's my career as a Christian poet. And a little bit like, here are the things that keep me sane <laughs> as I continue to live my day-to-day life and deal with my work and deal with my family and my friends and all the problems that just come up being a human. Mm-hmm. So it seems more like, um, though you're operating from a Christian worldview, you're still writing poetry just from the heart, you know, not, not just governed by a will to evangelize or anything like that, right? Yes, I I never particularly set out to write a quote unquote Christian poem, Mm -hmm. but because I am a Christian, that permeates my work. Now I will say I do sometimes write poetry as part of a devotional practice, Mm -hmm. but I mean, I think hopefully 
as you mature in your Christian life, you don't necessarily set up walls between like, this is the Christian portion of my life. And this is the regular profane portion of my life. Like ideally everything is holistic. Right. Yeah. That's, that's very insightful. Um, I I've known people who would um, say like, they don't, they don't want writers to put their worldview into their writing, which is, completely nonsensical uh so i I mean your worldview permeates every belief that you have yes it does and so yeah that's um that that's helpful that you say that so um along with that what do you think inspires you in your poetry Um, (laughs) um i know it's a cliche to be like nature inspires me but I grew up in Western Kentucky. I grew up, I spent a lot of my childhood playing outside in the yard, surrounded by trees. Mm-hmm. And anytime I feel really disconnected from God and myself, one of the best things for me to do is to go out and to walk mm-hmm. and to get just closer to some trees and a body of water and feel a real sense of, I am a part of the world, but I am not the center of the world. Mm. Mm. Um, In terms of writing, well, I I try to read broadly. Um, I'm I'm an editor in my other day job. Mm. And kind of in order to keep track of what's going on in the publishing world, I like to read across a broad spectrum, memoirs, nonfiction, popular fiction, young adult fiction, classics, uh, comic books. I actually read a lot of comic books. <laughs> but, and that, that gives me things to think about. And eventually all of those things that you think about come out in your own writing. So I'm, I'm really dependent on the work of other smarter writers. <laughs> hmm. Well, that's that's very humble. Um, Speaking of your your day job, why don't you tell us a bit about that? Um, What is it exactly that you do? I am a freelance editor. Um, I did, when I first got out of college, and I guess over the summer uh, while I was in college, I worked for a small independent publisher. And then I went and I worked there full time for a while. It was a really good experience. I learned a lot about the publishing world and because they were a small independent publisher, I got to be involved in a lot of processes that at a bigger publisher, they'd be like, no, you're just the intern. Like nobody cares about your opinions on you know, book cover design or marketing or fill in the blank. Um, so it was a really good experience. I learned a lot. I saw how the sausage is made, um, <laughs> which is both exciting and kind of discouraging, mm-hmm. but it was good. And then I, I've done freelance editing since then and I've done it full-time which is what I do now and I've also done it kind of as a side gig when I worked other jobs I worked for several years at a nonprofit, and I would do freelance editing on the side and I really I enjoy it it allows me to use kind of the book skills that I have as a writer but Mm -hmm. it allows me to help other people and kind of midwife other books 
into creation. And I love that. I love seeing the potential in somebody else's work mm. and saying like, if you do these things, we can get it to a point where either you can self-publish it and start to market and reach your potential audience, or you can send it to a traditional publisher or agent and it will hopefully be the sort of thing the market is looking for right now. Mm. And that's, that's a different part of my brain than writing, but it's a very satisfying feeling to help somebody else mm -hmm. bring their writing into fruition. Mm. Mm. Do you primarily edit uh, fiction writing or poetry? I almost exclusively edit prose. Okay. Um, which is which is odd because I write a lot of poetry, mm -hmm. but I poetry editing. I mean, you know this. It's it's a different animal. It's hard, and I I sometimes feel like I know what I know about poetry. I sometimes feel like I know on a gut level, as opposed to a really formalized level where I can say like ah, you are following this school of poetry. Mm -hmm. And and if you are following this school of poetry, then you need to make these changes to, to reach this readership. Mm -hmm. And I know what I like in poetry and I know what appeals to me, but I don't always, I don't always understand what makes certain things tick. Mm -hmm. And it's easier for me to do in prose. So a lot, uh, back to the inspiration question, um, is there a particular aspect of the Christian life that you find particularly inspiring? Oh. <laughs> um, I feel like anytime I'm wrestling with anything and I'm probably always wrestling with some question. <laughs> and I had a professor in college, uh, shout out to Dr. Mary Brown, <laughs> who I remember said once, if you don't have some question of your faith that you aren't currently wrestling with, you probably aren't growing. Mm. And I thought that was both very comforting and very wise because I always feel like there's some aspect of my faith that I'm like, I don't understand this as well as I like to, either mm -hmm. in a technical theological aspect or in a very personal way. And mm. so whatever I'm currently wrestling with, tends to come out in my poetry. Uh, I also, when I was younger, I would read the Psalms a lot. Um, I was kind of a depressed teenager. I got a lot of encouragement out of the Psalms. As I get older, of course, of course the gospels and of course uh, the epistles and those like, how now shall we live parts of the New Testament, but also Ecclesiastes and Job are much more comforting to me now than they were when I was younger. Hmm. Do you think that's because it, it is able to commiserate? Yes, yes. To see, to see not only the question of why is there so much evil and things are unfair and they are objectively unfair, and why isn't God doing anything? And this is how I feel. Not only to see that presented, but to see that 
presented and just allowed to be um, without some like strong counter. No, don't feel that way. Don't say those things. Job and Ecclesiastes are just allowed to exist in the Bible in all of their uncomfortableness. Right. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I agree. I, I went to Job many, many times uh, as a young kid. Um, I always, I was hung up by God's response to Job. Um, the, the kind of wrathful hand that, that came down. Um, what, is there anything that you, that you can say to, to that? Like why, why God would respond in that way? I mean, it's interesting because the, the, the central tension of Job is Job is all like, I was a good man. Mm-hmm. Like I was, I arguably did everything correctly and all of these bad things happened. And then Job's three friends come and they're like, well, you must have done something. Like if you, if you read their arguments at the basis, at the bottom of their argument is this idea of like, well, surely you committed some sin somewhere or you wouldn't mm-hmm. be suffering in this way. Right. And then you have the youngest, and I cannot remember his name, but the... Elihu? I think that's, yes. Who's, who c- says, I waited all this time to speak because you're, you were all older than me. But I mm-hmm. feel like somebody has to defend God. And it's interesting. He doesn't necessarily say, Job, you must have sinned. He just says, God is holy and we can't question him and call him evil for doing things outside of our understanding and that's when after he speaks god appears and god also doesn't say job you sinned he said i'm god and i am the one who you know controls leviathan who causes the desert to bloom in places where no man sees it i do all of these things and at no point does he say, Job, this happened because of something you did. But he does say, I am God and you are not. And at the end of that, Job says, oh, crap, I don't, I withdraw. And I don't even think it's necessarily the strength of God's arguments. Because God doesn't necessarily respond to Job's questions. Exactly. Yeah. I think it is the strength of the presence of God and the incomprehensibility of that. And at the end of that, God has Job offer sacrifices on behalf of his three friends who did not speak well. Like, even though you could argue, they technically said some of the same things that God said, like God is God and he is holy, but they also kept bringing in So therefore, this stuff is happening because you did something wrong, Job. And there was a period when I was at my sickest where I read the book of Job and I read the gospel of John simultaneously. Mm. And I would read, and Job was a little longer than John, so I would read a few more chapters of Job in a day than I would read of John. But I would go back and forth day by day. And there was... I highly recommend that to anybody who is at a weird point in their life where they are struggling because in many ways, John answers Job 
-hmm. like the Bible, different books of the Bible exist in conversations with each other in different ways. Mm -hmm. And there are bits of Job that are kind of echoed in portions of the gospel. And it's, it was fascinating to read John at the same time as Job, because you have these questions of suffering, and then you have Christ show up, who is the suffering servant, who takes on our suffering, and he doesn't, and you, you start, I, for me, it was almost this realization of like, oh, God doesn't owe me anything, mm-hmm. and yet he has decided to give me all of this grace. Like the world is already fallen and broken. And in the gospel of John, you have the story of the man who was born blind, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite stories in the gospel because the disciples come up to Jesus and they are like, well, who sinned this man or his parents that he should be born blind. And Jesus says, it's not that any of them have sinned, but it's so that the glory of God may be shown through him. Mm-hmm. And what, what a fascinating piece of theology. And, and it's the, the whole story of a man who's born blind is, is incredible just all the way through. Cause you have the point where he's, where he's healed. And then the Pharisees are all like, well, how did this happen? And he was like, it was Jesus. And he, they were like, no, don't say that. Like, like, and he's like, but all I know is that I was blind and now I see, which is such an iconic verse of scripture. But it's also such a, a great foundational piece of theology that I keep coming back. Like, I don't know that much in and of myself, but I do know this little bit that Christ came for me, to me, and I was blind now I have sight mm-hmm. um, speaking in a very metaphorical way obviously right well th- that was excellent um, and now that you bring it up um, the story of the blind man it's, it's such a good um, uh, just a synthesis of seeing our, our lives as, as a whole um, yeah. and we can, we can make sense of the pain and the good that it can bring about, not just for us, but for, for others. So yeah, that, that, that speaks to me a lot too. So um, just tell us a bit about your, your writing process. Oh man, my writing process. Um, <laughs> it's a little, sometimes like, do my days have a process? But <laughs> I, if I do not write for too many days in a row, because sometimes like life happens and I have work and I have deadlines, I lose some mental stability. Like, like I just lose a sense of myself and I can feel kind of reality floating away from me. Mm-hmm. And, and, not in the, and not in any sense that I go like, quote unquote, crazy, but I just... I lose something. So I have to try to set out time within my week to have long portions of the time to sit down and write. And it doesn't necessarily matter what it is. 
Um, it can be prose, it can be fiction, it can be poetry, but I have to have that time some, somewhere in my schedule just to feel sane. Um, and sometimes it'll be like, finally, I have time, I'm gonna sit down and write up, work on this project that I've been wanting to work on, or I'll write this poem that I've been wrestling with. And sometimes I will sit down and I will be like, I have no ideas. I have no idea what to do. And I will go out and I will pull up some poetry prompt somewhere. Um, for a while I was collecting words, like he'd get those dictionary word of the day emails. Yes. Yeah. And every time I'd be reading something, I'd come across a word I didn't know, I'd write it down. And I'm like, I'm gonna write a poem. And this poem is gonna include these five words. And I will tell you, they were not great poems, at least as drafts, because in somewhere in the revision process, most of those words had to come out because they made no sense. Mm -hmm but it was a good starting point. So sometimes I start on a project that I've already had in mind and I've been working on it. Sometimes I'm like, nope, I have nothing, but I need to write just to stay sane. So we're gonna do some prompts. We're gonna play with some ideas. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, that's great. Um, so what do you think is the purpose of writing poetry as a Christian? This is such a good question. It's such a complicated question. I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna give two different answers. Okay. Uh, and the first answer would be, Genesis tells us we were created in the image of God and God is a creator. And so I feel like anytime we participate in an act of creation. We are echoing God. We are taking part in the joy of creation. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's part of what we are meant to do as humans, which is a little bit of a, I guess, an argument for art for art's sake. <laughs> um, I don't, I think something beautiful can exist in the world just because we are created to make beautiful things. Mm. I do also think that poetry has a power to touch people in a very particular way. Mm -hmm. And poetry is very experiential. Right. Like it's hard to make good arguments in poetry, mm -hmm. but a lot of people are tired of being argued to or with. And if Christianity is at least in part about relationship, um, which I believe it is, you don't argue somebody into a relationship. Mm -hmm. Like relationships happen through experiences that are shared. And to me, a poem is an experience. It's a very, it tends to rely on the senses. It tends, it tends to be hard to explain <laughs> to other people. Um, you, you can experience in ways that are hard to put into straight prose. Uh, when I read T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets, mm -hmm. I loved it. And I felt like I understood it on this personal level, but I could not tell you anything about it because so much of the experience of it is in the is in the, the sound, 
the sounds of T.S. Eliot create the experience and you know things through his use of sound and repetition that you would not know or understand if it was just an essay. Right. Right. Yeah. That reminds me a bit of uh, Gertrude Stein because um, her work, I mean, it, it's complete nonsense. Um, but um, you still arrive at a meaning of it in a way because you can make sense of the sound, you know, her use of the words, uh, the words just carry it all. And along with that, um, I, I remembered as you were talking, John Keats, um, he uh, wrote on negative capability. It's, it's just the thesis from what I understand that we can read something like poetry and we might not get it um, consciously, but subconsciously we do. Um, and I can tell you too that um, I've talked with many writers uh, who often don't even know what, what uh, when they wrote it, what they meant. Yeah. Um, now that's not, that's not to say that it has no objective meaning, but it means that, you know, in the moment, I mean, we, we don't sit down and think, I really wanna write about the problem of evil. You know, I mean, it just, it just kind of comes. It's just uh, inspiration. So. Yes, that reminds me of Madeline uh, Lingle's Walking on Water. Mm. Uh, which is a which is a great book on the writing life and faith. If anybody listening is curious about a really good mm-hmm. book on that, um, and she she says she often writes books that are smarter than she is, and that's part of how she defines the idea of inspiration. And I love that because yeah. sometimes I will come back to things that I wrote and be like, oh, oh, that that theme is just threaded through there but I have no conscious memory of trying to put that theme in. Yeah. I've had people read um, some of my own work and uh, you know, like one time my friend, uh, he said, I think that the speaker in this poem is you. And I'm like, Oh no, no, I wasn't writing. And I was like, <laughs> well, maybe it is about me, you know? Um, yep. Yeah. So does that happen a lot for you too? Yes. Yes. But like, no, this is not connected to some area of my life. And then somebody will be like, oh, this makes me think of such and such. Or mm-hmm. I can see the influence of some other something here. And I'm like, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> and then later it's like, oh, no, that's definitely there. Which mm-hmm. is why I think sometimes we can't fully trust writers when they tell us what is and isn't in their work. Right. Uh, like Tolkien being like, no, Lord of the Rings has nothing to do with the war. And I'm like, it certainly has something to do with war. Like there, there's some, there's some influence of that in there. Absolutely. So I keep saying that, that there is a, a surge of Christian evangelical poets right now putting out work. Um, and I say that as an editor um, who's read a lot of these poets, um, I feel that there's just an unprecedented number out there right now writing. I don't know if it's just because of the influence of the internet and people being able to disseminate their stuff easier, or if it really is a kind of poetic revival. Um, I like to think that there's some truth to, to both. 
but do you, but do you see it as a kind of quote unquote resurgence of art and evangelicalism? I, you know, you've asked this question of people on other podcasts. I have. Yeah. And when, when I first heard it, I was going to say like, no, I don't, particularly in relation to poetry, I was going to be like, well, I don't know because I always feel like I'm at least six years behind on trends in poetry because it takes me so long to read poetry. Like I do try to read poetry constantly and consistently, but it can take me months to get through a single volume. And so whenever there's like a trend or a resurgence, I might be the last person to know. But you had D.S. Martin on your first podcast and he was talking about his project, what is it called, where he, the poems about Ephesians. Yes. Uh, and I was for Ephesians. And I was like, I I know about that. I've heard of that. My grandmother sent me one of those poems. Mm -hmm. At which anytime you have a family member who sends you like an email when you're a poet and they're like, We think you'll like this, there's always a part of you that's like, oh no. <laughs> Is this gonna be like some really sappy yeah. you know, thing that I have to politely say thank you for sending? But it was very good. Right. Um and so both the fact that that I had heard of that and that other people in my life had also heard of that to the point that they were sharing it with people does suggest to me some kind of change, some kind of movement. And I don't know quite, I don't know quite where that's going. I see more and more in evangelical churches a desire to bring the arts in. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of uncertainty about how to do that because if you are not a music musician or a singer, <laughs> I think often the church doesn't know what to do with you as an artist. Yeah. And if you are not out there like painting crosses, they're like, we don't know what this means, and right. uh, but I see I see more and more of a desire to bring the arts in. I've seen that in the church I currently attend. Um, I had been asked uh, one of the poems that I will read. Invitation was originally written for a service at Gateway Fellowship. I mm -hmm. have attended many churches. I have never been asked to write a poem for a service before. Mm -hmm. Um, that was very unusual to me and, mm. uh, and a really good experience. And I've done some other pieces for Gateway, but I've seen them, I've seen churches use visual arts. Um, I have a friend who both studied visual arts and now works on her church team and does many different things there. But one of the things that she does is kind of I don't want to say staging because you don't want to make church sound too much like theater in the sense of mm -hmm. not being real, but she does things with staging and she does things with lights and backdrops and color because that's her skill set. Mm -hmm. And she's found a place where that's being brought in to the church, which I think is really beautiful and I don't I don't know what's I don't know where this will go and I don't know what this means 
for Christian writing overall, because for a long time, you were either, you either wrote for the secular world or you wrote for the commercial Christian market. And there was not a lot of crossover, Mm. even though there were a lot of Christian writers who wrote with Christian themes, (laughs) books that were read by both Christians and non-Christians. And I feel like we're seeing more quote unquote literary Christian work being acknowledged as that right now. So I think there is some kind of movement, but I don't, I don't know enough to describe it. And I feel, like I said, I feel like I'm always behind on trends. So if I'm noticing something, I feel like it must be there because I'm always so behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I I feel behind too. So um, yeah, I I think you'll find that many, many people are in the literary scene. Um, There's kind of this assumption that the people who work in the scene are very savvy to all the ongoings inside the movement and but that that's just no one has the time or you know to be completely versed in all the little iterations of poetic movements that pop up and and stuff like that so um so yeah we're kind of we're all kind of right there with you um but would you consider yourself part of that movement now now reflecting on it i i would love to be I mean, and honestly, I write. I write to be read by a lot of different people, and I've been published in very secular publications. Um, and I'm not necessarily like trying to sneak in through the back door and like quick stab somebody with Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> but but I do I do consider myself a Christian writer, and. I, and I love reading work that is God-centered, mm-hmm. but is complicated, that, that doesn't ignore the messiness of living in a fallen world. Yeah. So I'd be very happy to be part of a Christian readership and writership that, that accepts that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, something that Matt said on the last podcast has stayed with me. Um, he he talked about, he didn't approach poetry as a ministry um, so much as he approached it as a meaning of expression. Mm-hmm. And naturally, that resulted in uh, God-honoring work. Um, so I, I guess a, a good way to describe what, what I'm seeing is a very organic movement inside Christian circles toward writing poetry as a means of their expression of worship, as opposed to like an agenda, you know? Yes. Uh, Cause, cause that's just, that's the worst thing you can do when writing is to have any sort of agenda, really, you know, political, religious, um, social, otherwise. So, so one of the things that I love about your poetry is that you can write from a Christian perspective with, what I call an MFA voice, um, even though, you know, I now know you didn't attend an MFA. Um, but I, I think what, what I mean by that is that your poetry shares some characteristics with the style cultivated by most MFA programs. 
and I see quite a bit of crossover there. And um, there are certain traits like an objectivity, uh, kind of distance with the subject matter or the experience that the poem's about. Um, so all in all, you're able to write from that voice, from a Christian worldview, and that's great. Um, what do you think are the things that have informed that style most? How did, how did you come to cultivate your voice? I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting question because I feel like I'm still cultivating my voice. Mm. Every time I think like, oh, this is who I am as a writer, I start to get a little bored and, <laughs> and think like, can I go a little deeper? Can I learn something new? Um, I grew up, the first poet I think I fell in love with as a child, well, the first poet I fell in love with as a child was Dr. Seuss, like one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. <laughs> but in terms of quote unquote serious poetry, uh, I fell in love with Robert Frost and he writes at a remove, um, but there's so, there's a thread of emotion run, running underneath his work. And I think I've always been intrigued by that that sense of, of something beneath the surface, but also somebody taking your hand and kind of guiding you in. And Robert Frost does that in a lot of his poems. You kind of feel like he's grabbing you and he's like, let's go to the creek. Like, let's look at these leaves. Let's stand by these horses. And suddenly you're like, you're there and you're with him and you're standing by the horses. But he's not necessarily saying like, and now I'm gonna tell you like, about my relationships. We're gonna get deep down in the depths of my heart. Um, but there, there's an emotion running underneath that. And then when I got a little older, I read Emily Dickinson and it kind of became a joke in college a little bit because I got really into Emily Dickinson. Um, yeah. And she also writes sometimes with a little bit of a remove, but there's more personal ideas there and there's more there's more emotion there's more feeling but she's able to step back from time to time and I like is it is it Shelley who said that poetry is strong emotion in retrospect hmm. never heard that I can't well I'm probably partially because I'm mangling the quote but there, there's an idea about poetry being a very strong emotion that is then recollected. And I do find that to be true. Poetry that I write in the moment tends to be very therapeutic, but garbled. Like everything is in this poem. None of the images make sense. I read it later and I don't know what I meant. Uh, but poetry that is a couple steps removed from whatever I was experiencing at that moment tends to make a little more sense. Mm. Uh, at least for me, I, I know other poets approach their work a little differently. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's no one way that poets go about it. Um, yeah. So that, that also reminds me, I've, I've been talking with other poets recently about clarity in work. Um, how, how, 
how, what do you think is the balance really? Like how much should a poet obfuscate uh, before, you know, it becomes basically like, uh, I, I don't know, Finnegan's Wake <laughs> oh, um, or, you know, should it be like painstakingly clear? Um, yeah. Well, I, I mean, there's, is, I feel like it's a little bit of a cliche, but there's a saying, but it's true. There's a saying like, your first draft is for you mm. and your second draft is for your reader. Mm. And I worked as, as an editor so much that the question that I always come back to with the writers I'm working with is, who's your audience? Who's your reader? Like, where's the reader in this? Because it is perfectly acceptable to write something that's just for you. And like, and to even like have a blog, put stuff up on your blog, like not care if anybody wants to read it or not. That, that is good. But if you are at a point where you're like, I want to hand this to somebody else. At some point you do start to think, who's going to be reading this and what are they looking for? Like what, what is going to be meaningful? And I, I often think of poems, if I reach the point where I decide I want to send them out somewhere as something I am sharing with somebody because I, at some point there's an experience, a, like, a heron that was at the creek and the light was hitting it just right that I just want, I just want to hand to somebody. I just want to wrap somebody else's hands around it and be like, experience this with me. It was, mm -hmm. it was so incredible. And this is the only way I know to give you this heron that was at the creek. Mm -hmm. And so I want to write in such a way that there's a door for somebody to come in. Mm -hmm. But how big that door needs to be depends on very much who the audience is. Like the poems that I wrote for Gateway, I tried to, you know, and that's funny to say because Invitations has the imagery of a door right uh -huh. in it. But, you know, it's for a church crowd that maybe doesn't necessarily sit down and read poetry on a Saturday. So I want to make it fairly clear and the imagery to be concise. Where is it? poem that I might write for an audience of poets would be a little different maybe. Maybe I would play with language a little bit more. Maybe I'm picturing some like silly millennial poets who enjoy some internet speak. So I'm gonna throw some of that in there. Maybe we're gonna have fun with memes today. But you know, maybe I'm gonna reference Greek mythology and so I'm going to expect the audience to have at least some knowledge of that. Um, but I always want there to be some form of a door right. for somebody else to enter in. I mean, it needs to be a dialogue, uh, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you don't want to just dictate the conversation. Um, so, you know, you, you don't just want to make it completely uh, esoteric and uh, just archaic language and, and things like that, or subject matter for that, you know, for that matter, so, something private. Um, but you also, I mean, you, you don't want to insult the reader's intelligence. Um, so that, that kind of leads into the next question, actually. Um, I, I think that 
one of the biggest pitfalls with modern poetry is that it's written as a kind of internal dialogue, um, as in between the writer and himself or, or herself, where they're the audience um, and not the reader. It's a kind of private mythology, to quote David Lyle Jeffrey, um, where the writer is just directing their attention solely at themselves. Um, and I think that that alienates the reader because the poem is only interested in the writer. Um, and it's only interested in being understood by the writer. And then it becomes inaccessible to everyone else. One of the brilliant things about your poetry is that uh, while you often write for and about yourself, you're also able to write from the first person in such a way that it doesn't exclude the reader. Um, so in other words, it still feels inviting. It feels like you're a character in the poem or a device that the poem uses instead of the audience for the poem itself. So it still feels accessible. Um, would you agree with that? Is that kind of your approach? Um, I would love to agree with that because I think that's one of the nicest things anybody said about my poetry. Oh. Um, <laughs> but well, um, I also think that there's a, uh, I don't, I don't want to disparage modern poetry too much because I do feel like poetry is a very intimate art. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you only need that one other reader mm. who connects with your work. Um, I don't, I do, I do feel like occasionally I hear people talk about a poem and I'm like, do you like it because you think you should like it? Or do you actually, does something in this speak to you? And I can't, I can't determine another person's experience of a poem. Mm -hmm. I, I do tend to lean a little bit more towards wanting at some point to be understood on some level. Um, I'm okay if I'm not understood by everyone on every level, right. but, but I do want to make a connection uh, but like I said, poetry is a very intimate art. Like we're not we're not out here becoming blockbuster bestsellers. We 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 will find we will find our small audience and we will connect with that. Mm -hmm. um, that said, I'd love to see poetry exist in the broader world in ways that it doesn't really right now. And you're right that modern poetry does not, you know, speaks to itself a lot, does not speak to a broader audience, which I think is a shame because I think poetry has so much to offer people. And anytime somebody comes up to me and they're like, oh, what do you write? And I talk, and they're like, oh, I hate poetry. Like I hear that constantly, like, oh, I hate poetry. I don't read poetry. And to, it's almost as sad to me as, one time a friend told me, I'm not really into food. And I'm like, it's food. How can you not love it? Like we all, we all need food to sustain ourselves. And there's a sense to which we all need poetry, but I think everyone is not aware of the way they connect to poetry. Um, I'm, I'm gonna go off on a tangent and I apologize. No, please do. But when I worked, in an office for a while, 
we hit we hit April and it was National Poetry Month, and and we were going a little crazy. We had a lot of deadlines. We had lost some people in our office, and a friend of mine and I were ex English majors, and we were like, it's National Poetry Month. We want to do something for us. So we we put a poem. We had a chalkboard wall. And we put a poem on one half of the chalkboard wall. And then on the other half, we would let people come in and like list their favorite poems. And we also told people like, if you come in to our department and you recite part of a poem, like we will bring you some kind of small prize at the end of the month. Like it can be any, it can be anything. It does not matter what it was. And it was amazing to me how many people who were like, I'm not really into poetry, but could come in and recite some bit of Shel Silverstein, some bit of Flan in Flanders Fields, some bit of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Like, like so much uh, poetry had gotten stuck in people's heads they didn't realize was there. Um, I had somebody come in, oh, I'm trying to remember which rapper they quoted and they were like, surely this doesn't count. And we were like, yes, it does. That's poetry. You get a point. Um, and I think, I think poetry has a way that it can stick in your brain and you can carry it with you. And so I wish, I wish more people were connected to poetry and I wish they were more poets. I feel like there are current poets who really would connect to people if more people read them. But I feel like there's been such a tra recent tradition of this barrier between regular people and poetry um, that even poets that I think people would really connect with often don't find that new readership. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I should qualify what I said earlier. I, I, I don't mean to completely uh, well, I don't want to do away with, with the modern style. Um, I mean, l like anything, you mean, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, you, you do want to keep its good traits. And the, one of the one of the greatest ones is that m modern poetry is very, it, make, it makes sense of the self, you know, quite a, quite a bit. Um, and, you know, even, even like with music, it, it's kind of analogous. I mean, there is objectively good music and then there's your favorite music. Right. You know. Yeah. So yeah, there, there is a component to, the, to that, that that's true. Um, and that, that should be retained. So now, um, I guess we'll, we're, we're going into a more sensitive area. And if I say anything that seems rude or out of line, then I trust that you'll forgive me. Um, yes. but, yeah. Um, but you've written extensively on both mental and physical illness. And uh, would you like to just tell us about that generally? Yes, I, I have a chronic illness that I have been dealing with uh, for quite some time. I probably before, well before I knew I was dealing with it, but for at least 10 years, I have known this was an issue. Um, I've been dealing with both exhaustion and pain um, in my day-to-day -day life. Also, I have had uh, bouts of, of anxiety and depression that have both been like 
very like serious hindrances to my day-to-day life from time to time, but I also don't want to overstate the seriousness because I have many friends who have had mental illnesses that have been much more life-consuming than mine has. Um, I also, oh, I don't know, in some ways I have been dealing with this for so long that it's bled into my work mm-hmm. for quite a while. But in other ways, I have only more recently started to write about this in a very straightforward way. Um, I've written some prose pieces where I just talk about the reality of dealing with physical illnesses mm-hmm. and ways ways to talk with friends who have physical and or mental illnesses that are helpful in ways that are not. Um, and it's taken me this long to get to the point where I feel comfortable enough to write about that because in some ways it's a sort of, when you have an invisible illness in particular, you can pretend to live your life as a quote unquote normal person Mm -hmm. if nobody looks too closely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And in some ways that's a lot easier because you can just like not get to something and be like, oh, sorry, like things got really busy or I'm so lazy. Like I used to like, just must be so lazy. I don't feel like to, I am not a lazy person in my day-to-day life. And I finally realized like, I've got to stop saying that because none of that is true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think kind of what pushed me towards finally writing about some of that a little more honestly is I kept coming across people in my own life, friends and family members who had similar types of struggles. And it hurt me that they didn't feel like they could be honest about it. And that they felt like they would be judged or looked down on Mm -hmm. when they brought that up. And some of them were very honest about it and then experienced consequences for their for just basic honesty about basic facts of their life and I was like I'm not I'm not helping by pretending that I'm more okay than I am Mm. like I don't want to I don't want to live in a place where the only thing I ever talk about is my own pain I don't think that's healthy on any level, no matter what kind of pain you're talking about. But it is, it is not honest and it is not helpful to either myself or other people to pretend like I have Jesus and now everything is okay all the time. Mm -hmm. And we've done that in the church a lot. Um, I, I tended to see two responses to pain when I was growing up, but one was kind of the little, the little old Baptist lady who's like, 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 I'm, you know, they're going to cut my leg off because of the gout or whatever, but praise Jesus, I'll be fine. Nobody worry about me. Like, and like, doesn't, just nothing, nothing, we should never complain and nothing is ever a problem. Mm-hmm. And the other one was kind of, some of the health and wealth, name it and claim it, 
stuff that I experienced in some areas of the charismatic church where, where on the one hand there was, I was very grateful for the deep belief in the supernatural power of God. Mm-hmm. But it was very difficult to admit that you had any sort of issues in your life because at some point it became a question of your faith. Like if you just believed harder, this would surely go away. Mm. And and neither of those, like it's real, but we're just all ignoring it, praise Jesus. And it's real, but it exists because you haven't believed enough Mm -hmm. help you deal with suffering. And they don't give you compassion for other people's suffering. And, and it, it creates a weird mentality where we start to look at other people who are struggling. Um, I, I worked for a nonprofit that, that helped children in third world countries. And the attitudes that people sometimes have towards that, where it's like, it's almost like, well, if you just weren't born in Africa, maybe this wouldn't happen to you. You should have thought about that before you decided to be born into a war-torn country that's been decimated by colonialism. You know, like, like, like there's, there's nothing useful about that except that it lets you think that you are somehow above suffering. Mm. Um, and, and a lot of our responses to other people's pain have to do with our fear of having to deal with the reality of pain and how close to the edge we all constantly are of being out of control in some area of our life. Um, and so that, that eventually pushed me to be like, this is something that I need to write about. Um, but it's hard to write about well, and I'm still in many ways struggling with that. And what, just like going back to Job and Ecclesiastes, I mean, that's dealing with the problem of pain. Um, and I mean, if if the holiest book in the world, I mean, you can't make sense of pain, you know, every, everyone's pain, then I mean, how, how can how can we sometimes? Um, and it, it's not even a problem that's exclusive to the Christian church. I mean, it's it's also just every every culture around the world. I mean, it, it's it's predicated on power um and in in american culture especially there is this kind of fetishization of how strong you are personally or physically or you know even even in academics you know um how can you assert your dominance over people and in that way you know you don't have to feel pain or you don't have to deal with it um so yeah uh, it, it is i think we're particularly called as christians since we're dealing with people on the most fundamental level to deal with people and their pain um yes. and it's it's very it's incumbent upon us to figure that out and i'm sure that you're helping us to do that so you say you have written poetry in response to your to your ailments is it a way to cope would you say to make sense of why you have those or what you have? 
Yes, I, uh, a lot of my poetry starts out as me just trying to process something and, put, and putting things into words is how I have learned to process things. Uh, I have other people in my life who are visual artists and they process things through visual mediums and like words are kind of half useless to them a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. But very, very, very much part of my coping process. And some of those are things that no one will ever see. They will just sit in journals or on hard drives being the terrible but useful poems that they were. Mm. Terrible but useful, I like that. Um, do, you, do you find that sharing your poetry is more therapeutic than the process of writing them or vice versa? Writing is so much more therapeutic. Um, I, I feel, I never feel as fully myself as I do when I'm sitting writing when I'm truly caught up in the middle of a writing project and I feel like yes this is the word that goes in this space like I feel I feel complete I feel like my real self as I am when nobody is looking at me mm. <laughs> which maybe is a very introverted thing to say uh, but sometimes I can lose myself in other people, like their perceptions, their needs, their wants, their desires. And when I sit down and write and it's just me and God and the computer or a notebook, I'm like, oh, I am real. <laughs> I exist and, and I am exploring. And the publication process and the sharing process is peripheral to that. Um, I enjoy, it's been a big encouragement to see more of my work published. And that certainly pushes me forward because having somebody outside of you say, hey, this might actually be good is deeply encouraging as a writer. And, and you know, no man is an island and all that. But, and seeing some people's responses to some of my work, um, some of the essays I wrote on pain, uh, people have, put in the comments their own experiences and I have not been able to respond to those because I look at those and I just want to cry because it it means so much to me just that somebody else out there feels a tiny bit less alone um, so that has been deeply encouraging but I would still have to write even if nobody ever read a single word I wrote. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that was beautiful. Thank you. Um, now, the next question again is is quite personal, and let, let me preface it by saying that um, it's 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 motivated by my own experiences. Um, so, since your illnesses and your pain affect your poetry pretty heavily. Um, if you had a choice to give that pain up uh, along with your poetic gifts and be healthy, would you take it? Or would you rather retain that pain and the poetic gifts? So yeah, what, what, are, your, what are your thoughts as far as that goes? That's a really interesting question. 
And I feel like on different days that you asked me, I would give you different answers. Um, I mean, I obviously in a realistic way, I can't, I can't disentangle poetry and writing poetry from my own life. Like I can't imagine a version of myself who is not somebody who writes. Mm. I can from time to time, not necessarily imagine a version of myself who has not been affected by pain, but I can certainly imagine my, a version of myself who is not in pain and exhausted most of the time. Because occasionally I have a good day and I'm like, no, this, this is what I wanna live in. That, like, oh my gosh, like I am actually, I can actually get stuff done when I am not fighting against a wall of pain constantly. Um, I have, I, I see a counselor and which has been a really uh, great thing in my life. And I just want to throw that out there in part because sometimes in, in both Christian circles and in art circles, there is a stigma towards taking steps to care for yourself, um, particularly your, your mental health, because there's a little bit of like a, I like, you know, the stuff that's wrong with me makes me who I am. And I'm like, or you could grow and maybe you could be an even better version. Um, but she, she said once something to me along the lines of, you've gained some kinds of wisdom through what you've gone through. And I was like, I think that's true. But if I was given the choice like if God made it an option, I would rather be slightly dumber <laughs> and not in pain all the time. And part of that is I lose so much. I lose so much time. I think, I think it is hard to comprehend unless you've gone through certain kinds of health crisis, how much brain power just pain takes from you. Like they talk about the fibromyalgia brain fog and that is very real and my brain is like my one tool that I have like nobody's hiring me to dig ditches like this is not this is not the body of a woman who is going to be good at digging ditches so like words and writing are like my one marketable skill set and some days the pain and the brain, they take that and I have to fight so hard just to answer a stupid email like it's so much, I lose, I have lost so much time and I've lost, so it's not an efficient way to learn lessons, but perhaps fortunately, I have not been given that option. Like take this cup from me is not, is not an option for me. Now I do, I write better when I feel better. Like there, there are days when I have a low level, like a pain and an exhaustion, but a functionality. And I don't enjoy the pain, but I have that functionality. And then there are days and there have been, there have been months in my life where everything is gone. Like it's just, it, it's just survival mode. Like you took a shower today. Good job, you. Now let's see if you can actually like, get, you know, lift your arm high enough to brush your own hair. Uh, I'm not 
at that point right now. And I am not interested in going back to that point. Um, and many people live in, in a pain that's much worse than that. I think, I think severe pain is, is an issue that, that we don't know how to deal with very well as a culture, um, how to handle people who are in that kind of constant pain. But no, I would, I would trade it. I would be, I would be healthy. And I don't know, like I said, I can't imagine a version of myself who is not a person who writes poetry. So that's hard, but maybe I would, maybe I would go out and dig ditches and enjoy that. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Um, I know some poets, you know, including me in the past, um, who, um, they thought that if they got better, um, then they would lose their writing capabilities. Um, and it's like, well, maybe you, maybe you should consider not writing from pain anymore. I mean, maybe, um, maybe then you can move on to something different, a different modus operandi. Um, and I, I found that to be true in my own life. Um, and I, I think in a way it's, it's just part of the process of, um, maturing as a, as a Christian, you know, you will eventually move beyond that, even though you're, um, you're used to writing like that and from that. Um, and I've also known people who, uh, they say the same thing about medications. Um, you know, like I don't want to take an antidepressant because then it wouldn't be me. And it's like, well, are you sure that you're you now, you know, yeah. yes. in, in yes. your state? So, there, there's a, Yes, I, and I hear people sometimes say, like, like you shouldn't need to like rely on medications to function. Like, like you shouldn't give some drug control. But at some point, like, part of human life is rely. Like, I am reliant on both air and water, <laughs> and mm -hmm. I'm not going to stop taking either one of those things. Right. We are so fragile as people. Like, we really are dust and I think that's what a mental health crisis a physical illness certain forms of poverty and injustice bring us back to this truth of how broken and human we actually are and and we can pretend to be stronger than that but that's not that's not truthful and it doesn't it doesn't allow us to show compassion for other people and their weakness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So do you, do you see sharing your experiences with your illness as expressly a form of ministry or something that can minister indirectly? Oh, goodness. Um, I guess I definitely feel a calling to write. And I feel like when I have avoided writing in the past because other things seemed quote unquote more important, I have stumbled constantly against the will of God for my life. Mm. Um, I don't necessarily always see why writing is important. I mean, obviously I believe in writing and I believe in stories and they've had a big impact 
in my personal life, but I don't necessarily like, like I wrote this essay that 12 people read and this is the same as being a nurse and saving lives. Like, no, no, it's not. Um, <laughs> but it is, it is a form of ministry in a sense that I feel like our daily life should be a form of ministry. And every day we should come into that day going, what has God put in front of me to do? Like, what is my, what, is, what are my jobs today? Not necessarily like, what are the things I wrote in my to-do list, but like, what are God's goals for me today? Who has he brought into my life? And what has he set before me to do? And sometimes the thing that he set before me to do is to write something. And sometimes I don't know if that's for me or for somebody else. And sometimes I have goals to write things. And then what he sets before me is like, your friend is in crisis. They have called you. You need to like talk your friend through this thing. Like all your plans for the day are out the window. Um, and I just, in the sense that like, yes, I think it is a ministry because it is what God has put in front of me to do. Mm-hmm. But in the, like, I don't always know how this is working. And I don't, and I frequently find myself looking at God being like, are you sure? Are you sure you don't want me to do something else? Right. Um, yeah, you know, I think that um, I, I used to have this this idea that because science so immediately impacts our lives, you know, like medical um medical equipment and the advances in that, that it somehow had like precedence over um, things with the soul, you know, like, uh, like poetry and like friendships and and things like that. There's a certain, there's a certain thing where it's like, yeah, these things save lives, but other things make them worth living. And in that way, they're also essential. You know, I mean, just think about, uh, what it'd be like to not have poetry at all. I mean, um, to not have that, uh, being able to share that pain and things like that, that, that'd be an awful life to live. Um, and two, you know, it's, yeah, there are, there are some things that have a higher, that that are higher on the hierarchy of needs and stuff like that. You know, I mean, there's something more fundamental about like, feeding somebody than just like sitting them down and you know reading a poem to them or, or something like that but it's also i mean i know of people who have been saved from suicide by reading a poem or seeing somebody smile and then deciding that they're not gonna um, level their head with a bullet that day so yeah you know there's um I, I, I think that writers should have a level head, but you know, they also shouldn't disparage what they do. I think it is important just like any other, any other job. So in closing, um, just what practical advice would you, would you give to young or undiscovered like Christian poets? And what I mean by that is things like how do you find places to submit? You know, how do you know which editors are going to be interested in your work? You know, just stuff like that. Yeah, this, okay. 
<laughs> I wrote I wrote notes for this question. I oh. was ready. Um, I'm start out by just saying, be stubborn. Um, just you're neither is when you start out as a writer, you're neither as good nor as terrible as you think you are. And it's okay if you think you're a little better than you are, I think, because that pushes you forward to try things that you wouldn't have the self-esteem to try otherwise. Um, and, and you will revise and you will get better. But I say, keep, keep trying, keep sending stuff out, keep revising, uh, be stubborn. One of the best, most encouraging pieces of advice I got um, was a couple years ago, I attended one of the best poetry readings I've ever attended. And one of the poets there was Tess Gallagher, who is a poet who splits her time between the US and Ireland and writes beautiful, beautiful work, um, has published several volumes. I think her most recent one is 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 Not. Um, she's, she's been in the literary scene for, for ages. And she, I went up to buy one of her books and, and it's like a Wednesday evening at the library and it's mostly retired people in the crowd because who else can go to a poetry reading on Wednesday evening? And she looks at me and she goes, are you a writer? Because like, why else would somebody who's not retired be hanging out at her poetry reading? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I've been writing things and I submit some of them sometimes, but I get mo mostly I get rejections. And she looked at me and she said, well, so I get a lot of rejections too which shocked me because she's a very, you know, well-known writer and very good and published several volumes. Mm -hmm. But she said, the thing to think about is it's just one person's opinion on your work. Mm -hmm. And that was such a kind thing for her to say. And I think of that often because I've had pieces that I've submitted. I've been submitting places for years. And then finally, one place later picks it up and it's just the perfect home mm. for that poem. And, and it doesn't, and sometimes the poem is better years later because I've been revising it and I figure out what it needs to be. But sometimes it has reached its final form and has been in that form for some time. And it just takes mm. a while to find the right publication. Um, so I would say be stubborn. <laughs> keep submitting, be consistent, as consistent as your life will allow you to be, to continue to submit. Um, I will also say in terms of where you find places to submit, and this is what I wrote notes on. Um, and Matt, um, and Matt Andrews in the previous uh, podcast also talked about this, but like when you find a writer you like, look, look in the back of their volume, or, you know, if you're reading poetry daily and you're like, I really relate to this poem, like scroll down and see where it was first published. And mm -hmm. that is a good way to find journals to submit your work to. So like, I write along this theme in this style, in this form, like that's a great way to find places. I also, I subscribe to Authors Published Newsletter. Author, mm -hmm. It's called Author Published Magazine and Freedom With Writing. And they will, a couple times a week, they will send emails out being like, here's a list of 17 contests without fees, or here's a new publication that's just started. 
they've, they've been really useful to me. I have found a lot of places uh, to submit work to and been accepted by several places through them. Um, Writers Market Books, they have not put one out for 2021. So I don't know if because, because of the way the internet is kind of taking things over, if they are going to continue to publish their guides, but most libraries have some fairly recent version of the Writer's Market, Poet's Market. Mm -hmm. And that is a good thing if you are starting out to go through and dig through. Um, I would say even if you get rejected from a journal, subscribe to their email newsletter because they will let you know about upcoming publication opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, and if they don't, if you find that their work is not that interesting to you, you can unsubscribe. But often if they're a journal who you want to see yourself in, Mm -hmm. It's worth your while to read the information that they put out and to read the poets that they are sharing. Um, Submittable no longer has a newsletter that they are putting out, as far as I can tell. But they do have the Discover tab. And so if you're submitting to places, you probably already have a Submittable account. And you can go up, like when you go into your Submittable account, hit the Discover tab, and there will just be this scroll, usually by date, and sometimes I will just go through and see, like, not, not the deadlines that are closing in 30 minutes because you, yeah. you want to give yourself some time to put together a good submission and make sure you really want to be, see your work in this journal. Mm -hmm. But I will go through, like, oh, they're closing in a couple days and maybe I want to meet this deadline. Go through and read, read their submission guidelines, read any examples they have. Make sure I understand the rules. Always follow the submission guidelines, kids. <laughs> but, um, and also just read like the about statement. The about statement for a journal is a really good indicator of whether, whether their ideas about writing and poetry and the world might fit with some of the ideas expressed in some of your work. When I read the solemn, you know, this is what we're looking for. I immediately went, oh, I have a drawer full of this stuff. Like, I don't know if they'll want any of it, but I have like this stuff that's too Christian for the literary world and too literary for the commercial Christian world. How do I, you know, what do I do with this? And when I read that about page and I don't, um, I'm trying to remember if there was a submission fee at that point, because I often don't submit to journals that have submission fees unless I feel like my work really fits. But when I saw your description, I was like, I don't care if there's a submission fee. That's that's where I'm going. So yeah. that was that was really helpful to me. So thank you for writing such a yeah. good description. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th well thank you for submitting. Um, yeah, that that's that's very helpful to even even to me, I didn't even know about some of those some of those markets. So um, and also again, I I've referred to Matt like three times now, but he he had some he had some good points. Oh, he had some great stuff. Yeah, um, it it's a it's always a good idea. I mean to to submit widely within reason, you know, um, because even I will get some stuff and I'm like, hey, this is great, but I mean it it completely. Well, it just doesn't fit my parameters that I've that I've prescribed. So, 
Um, so yeah, there, I mean, editors are people, you know, they, they, they haven't come across every kind of literature, you know, they, they don't always know what they're going to like. So, but obviously, I mean, if you're a Christian and you're going in and submitting to like an atheist publication or something that's explicit about that, obviously they're yeah, not going to like, that. we hate all religious references, which I have occasionally come across things where they were like, we don't want any religious references anywhere. And I'm like, well, I guess this might not work out for me. And not that all of my work is explicit, has explicit religious references, but sometimes there's, you know, there are phrases that I am used to that I don't necessarily think of being as brutally religious. And sometimes I'm like, maybe I don't, maybe I'm just not the right philosophical bent for right. your particular journal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Well, that's really excellent, Bethany. Um, this has been great talking with you, and I, I would love it if you would close us out by reading some of your poems. Sure. I'd be happy to. I'm going to start out with Cedars. Sure. This is from the first volume of Solemn Journal. Mm -hmm. Cedars. Seraphs. With one set of long, needled wings, they cover their faces. With one, their feet. And with one, they fly above chimney tails, scratching the chin of heaven. One afternoon, glory falls, crashing across maples, a dining room table, the cement birdbath, some secret question in the corridor and chorus, even softer than belief, home to a busy colony of wonderings, which tremble and then empty out. The next poem I'm gonna read is Inland to the Sea, which I think I mentioned, like you're not supposed to have favorite children, but this is secretly one of mine. So I was really happy to see it picked up. Yeah, it was one of my favorites from the journal. Inland to the Sea. Indiana, read Oliver's wild geese and think, but someone does need to be good, even if it is hard on the knees. What will we do if nobody tries? Kentucky, my coworker doesn't understand why her kids don't trust her when she loves them so much. Want to say she doesn't really love them, just feels intense emotions in their general direction. And in the shamed of my own heart, a mud bank where the bitterness of eons collect want to say a lot of broken glass and hope the not saying might be counted to me as love. Indiana, take off my shoes in the college chapel, lock the door, take off my watch and earrings and ring and necklace, pile them all in a pew, dance on the dirty color drenched floor, lie down in the shape of a cross, cheek right next to piece of dry grass, roots still attached, pleading, tell me, what do you think? Pleading, please don't answer that. Eventually, somebody knocks. Visiting parents want to see the stained glass. Gather myself like a secret and slip away. Move west, read in Blackwater Woods. Whisper it relentlessly to myself. Still want to grab strangers by the lapel. Care, God damn you, why won't you act? I'm still an undredged sludge of shards. Goodness is not the sea, but a river adjacent. The sea 
as feared, has teeth, but also round palm-sized windows, jade, sapphire, snow eyes, beach combers, and children can pluck casually from warm sand without worry of cutting themselves. Um, this, this third piece uh, is Invitations, which was um, the piece that I talked about that I wrote for Gateway um, mm -hmm. for a, a series that they were doing actually on evangelism and building the sort of relationships with people that are that are evangelistic and that kind of as opposed to looking at evangelism as just like a I'm going to recite the Romans road to you but more like a who who around me can I connect with and through that connection how do I eventually live Jesus mm -hmm. invitations who do you say that I am why are you so afraid who touched me? Even Christ, who knew men's hearts as intimately as he knew the throat tickle of sawdust and the slop of Jordan River mud, has a red-letter dialogue full of question marks, 135 of them. What do you want me to do for you, he asks, as though two blind men calling his name from the side of the road might just be curious about the time of day. But he asks, to ask is to wait to put the things you wanted to say back in your pocket and open your hands to receive the frightening gift of someone else's story. For those of us who hardly understand our own thumping flesh, to ask is to admit ignorance, to say, I am also here to learn. Will you teach me the thrumming valves and tunnels of your needs? To ask is not to push, but to open a door and leave it swinging suggestively, a creak of hinges, whispering across a square of light. Why not? Why not? So the last piece I'm going to read uh, is actually from a publication called Subnivian. Um, it's, it's a piece that's more directly about chronic illness and health issues, so I thought that would work well in this conversation. The things that are wrong with me. One, inclinations. I want to crack my knuckles open, find the secret angels inscribed inside some bone. I know it will be the last place I look. Two, fibro and chronic fatigue. On Sunday, my pastor presses the heel of her hand into the spade of my forehead. The Lord will deliver you from your enemies, she warns, but not your friends. On Monday, I hold my mug of tea between my eyes, my thumb between pages of Joseph Campbell. You must conquer the dragon by making allies with it. I do not die and I do not heal. Chronic indecision. I feel a hidden thinness growing, hollowing out in some dark core like bird bones. I lose color. I lose balance and concentration and memory. I gain stones where muscles used to cluster and golden mucus. I lose pages off the calendar. I gain 34 separate pills and supplements. I lose and gain doctors like lovers. I gain pain without romance or virtue or meaning and an exhaustion that is not world weariness or ennui or lack of passion, 
but just my body wishing to lie down sick and get up well. Three, methylation mutations. I cut my teeth on symbols, on avatars and parables. My body was a temple of the Holy Spirit. My body was an eye and a hand to hold the pen. I was not my body. I was the tree that pushed her way up through the neighbor's shed into the sun. I came here unprepared. Every explanation is medical caricature, an illusion I might finally grasp. Poor Tin Man, poor TikTok. All the switches that should be flipped on but are hereditarily off. The rusted cogs, the clogged filters. I'm meticulous, ticking, repairable invention. Not this animal, not this stupid miracle. That was very powerful, powerful, Bethany. Thank you. Um, yeah, I I wanted to ask, um, you're, when you're reading your poetry, um, your spacing is quite unique um, and the structure is, is very unique too. How integral do you think that that is uh, to your, to your uh, poetic style? Uh, line breaks and spacing are pretty important to me. Um, I mess with those a lot. <laughs> and often a poem doesn't feel fully done until I've hit the right spacing and breaks. And I will read aloud things a little differently than the breaks exist on the page because I like, I like it when a poem can exist in two realms of meaning where you could have a mm -hmm. break that suggests one meaning and a flow of sentence that suggests another. Mm. Uh, that that delights me in a particular way, I think because wordplay delights me a little bit. And so if I if there's a way that I can play with that, I will. Um, some of it is just feel. I feel that certain poems want to be certain shapes. And until they are the shapes that they want to be, they will continue to bother me. And they mm. will just nag at me in the back of my head like, no, this isn't quite right. Um, I've done, I've had to do some work lately to keep my poems from getting too similar. You can get into patterns where you're like, all your lines follow this pattern. After this many lines, you find yourself doing a stanza break and you don't know why anymore and you're not really thinking about it. So I try, I try to shake it up a little bit just to see if there are other shapes that the poem will be interested in being. I realize that sounds really, that sounds a little kooky, like the poem is sitting there alive, making demands. Mm -hmm. But but yes, in answer to your question, line breaks become important to me. Um, but I frequently had editors suggest sometimes changes to line breaks that I'm like, yes, that's better. Yeah. That's that's what this poem wanted to be, and I wasn't able to get there. Right. So, yeah, I mean, we are we are tapping into something objective. I mean, when we when we make when we when we write poetry, so it's not just kind of a will of the wisp thing. Um, I've had people, at, you know, uh, ask why why it is that poets have such weird shapes <laughs> with their writing, or you know. Is it is it kind of a visual aesthetic thing that you that you like? Yes, um, and there's a bit of a 
sometimes there's a break there because we are jumping, even though it may not seem immediately clear in the language of the poem, we are shifting in ideas or there is a there's a shift in tone that might not be immediately obvious just in the way the poem is, but here, like, and sometimes it's more, it's more straightforward. Glory Falls is, there's a definite break there that just represents the physical falling. It also represents a moment of change in the poem where we go from cedars or seraphs to questions of belief. Um, and so it's a little more, something is falling physically on the page and it's very representational. But sometimes it represents a speed of, a speed of thought or ideas. Like sometimes a bunch of short lines together read choppily depending on where your commas are placed, where, what words you are using, how long or short those words are. And so they can add to kind of a choppy f rhythm. And then all of a sudden you break that up with a really long line and you're like moving into a flow of language mm -hmm. that didn't exist at the shorter lines. But on the other hand, sometimes really long lines suggest a, we can't even take a breath. We just got to run, run through this line, quick, run through this line with me and read it really fast in your head. Um, mm -hmm because I read a lot of poetry in my head <laughs> and not aloud. I like having those lines as kind of little guides of a way to read a poem. Yeah, yeah, that's very helpful. Um, well, Bethany, um, it's, been, it's been great talking to you today. Um, I really love your work. I see a lot of good things coming from you and for you. Um, so keep on keeping on. Um, and uh, just thanks for being here. And uh, thank you everyone for uh, tuning in and uh, we will see you soon. Thank you.